Well, hello again and welcome to another of our Baird Bites. Uh, one of the things we've been interested in over the last few years is the impact of social media on employer relations. And we've seen such things as the Me Too movement. And we saw, for instance, 30,000 Googlers walk out around the world to protest about a payoff to an executive who was accused of um, harassment. Um, so social media has also played a, and plays an increasingly significant role in our politics. Um, nobody has to be told about the extensive use of Twitter by the former president of the United States, um, now retired to, is it Margo El Largo or whatever it is in front of anyway. So I'm joined in this particular bird by, by Imran Ahmed. I'm never great on pronouncing names, but you all know that anyway. And uh, Imran has a background in um, English politics uh, as a special advisor, as an advisor, um, but now runs the Centre for um, Combating Digital Hate, uh, a, a non-profit organisation designed um, to try and counter, especially with younger people, those who use social media more than people like myself. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out what you face is, but I keep getting told I get that wrong. Um, and they've recently just published a report called Malgorithm, um, which looks at the, what I would call the abuse um, of Instagram or the abuse by Instagram um, uh, of the way people use it and the direction by the algorithm um, to sites that many of us would be very, very uncomfortable with. So first of all, thanks for taking the time um, to talk to us. Um, you got to understand, you know, that somebody like myself, you know, grew up where the fax was the, you know, was the pinnacle of technology, you know, um, who can about turn on a computer. Um, and if the computer screen goes blue, I have no idea what to do next. Um, so tell me a little bit about um, the dynamics of social media. Now, I understand social media um, to be Facebook, Twitter, um, YouTube, but it's obviously more than that. So now what's the ecosystem and what are the dynamics of social media in general? Well, look, thanks for having me on. Look, there's three ways you can look at social media. So the first way is how most of us experience it, which is that it's a way of connecting to people that we love and creating a friendship or a connection to them, following them, and then being able to see what they publish about their life, what they say they're up to. And it's a, a new form of performance in a social setting in which people say, I'm up to this, I'm up to that, and, and lets them feel that they're connected to people. The other way of looking at it is that it was set up, so Facebook itself, the original, the, the granddaddy of social media platforms created by Mark Zuckerberg, uh, who at the time was a student at Harvard University. He set it up as a way of rating the attractiveness of other Harvard uh, students and specifically female students. And it was a way of literally marking faces. 
and it allowed people to judge each other. And that's the second way that social media exists. It's a way of us looking at each other and creating judgments about the brands that people put forwards. And that has driven a lot of change in our society, not just in terms of how we establish fashions, trends, we think of each other as human beings, but it's also driven things like a mental health crisis in young people um, who women in particular who've been affected by this. And the third way of looking at it is, it is the cleverest business ever invented. Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg is now worth over a hundred billion dollars. He doesn't produce a single bit of the content on Facebook. He's essentially created a platform that others use to put their own content he puts advertising next to it, and ad by ad, he's accrued $100 billion before the age of 40, which is an extraordinary business. And this is now the main way in which we advertise to each other. It is one of the dominant forms of leisure activity. And as with all leisure, it has to be funded somehow, and it is funded by advertising, and it's made a small number of companies that dominate this new leisure sector incredibly wealthy. Go back a moment. You talked there about um, social media creating severe mental health problems, especially for younger people. Tell me a little bit more about that. So one of, one of the features of social media is that it taps into, and one of the ways that social media was designed was to tap into fundamental psychological biases and weaknesses in our, in our makeup. And in fact, if you look at the, um, that the, there is a, a laboratory for studying human psychology and, and addiction at Stanford University, I understand, which was featured in the documentary, The Social Dilemma, which is available on Netflix now, um, directed by my good friend, Jeff Olofsky and starring Tristan Harris from the Center for Humane Technologies, a former engineer for the social media companies. But, what it does is it taps, and in this particular instance, it taps into our desires to judge others, but also to, 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 to define ourselves, to judge ourselves based on what others think of us. And as social media has become a dominant means by which people judge each other, it has created problems because in fact, that judgment is done within the confines of a system that allows for the systematic abuse and harassment of people without consequences. And that's really where the problem started to arise. That what we've seen is the emergence of new forms of malignant social behavior, harassment, and they're actually old forms, but with new expression, harassment, bullying, vicious identity-based abuse based on whether someone's a woman, whether they're black, Asian, or another minority. Um, and we've seen those happen in in an environment that has treated that abuse with impunity. So there are no consequences for it. You don't get kicked off the platform for being an idiot. Ironically, you're more likely to succeed to be seen if you act like an idiot because the algorithms that underlie, the, 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 the equations that underlie what gets seen and what doesn't actually reward the most contentious behavior. These platforms tap into another psychological desire, 
which is our desire to see car crashes, and they, they, they put up front the most contentious material. Why? Because if you want to serve people advertising, don't make them happy, make them angry. It's, it's just what they call uh, clickbait, you know, where you, you put something up there that will just get people to click and watch it. It, it taps into the same psychology, and it's, it's why misinformation has the whip hand over good information. I mean, one of the questions I ask rooms full of doctors quite frequently is, how, when's the last time that you saw some misinformation and you engaged with it? You either replied to it or you quoted it and said, look at this, this is disgusting, and therefore broadcast it to millions of people. And when's the last time you replied to the NHS or the CDC or the World Health Organization? Well, no one ever engages with a corporate health channel. But we do all the time engage with contentious misinformation because that's what's chewy and interesting and that's what we want to virtue signal about. So again, sorry. But isn't it isn't it isn't the way that's what tabloid newspapers have been doing for ever in the day, whether in the UK or build in Germany or you know, um, whatever is the equivalent in France and you know, what is it in the US National Enquirer? You know, I mean, I remember Men in Black where they were using the National Enquirer. Oh, look at these stories here. That's the stuff that sells. So it's the dominance of the ecosystem. And look, the primary means now by which we exchange information, by which journalists find out what's trend, what's important, what's not, what people are interested in. Politicians assess what they think the Vox Populi, the, the voice of the people is, mm. are social media platforms. And there is no equivalent of the New York Times of social media platforms. There is no equivalent of the Washington Post or the Guardian or the Times of London. There are simply these platforms which all work to one implacable inexorable logic. How can we make as much money as possible by keeping people on the platform, by serving them up exactly what they want to hear? And what they want to hear is often either contention that they can then virtue signal about, or it's confirmation of their own opinions. So what the people share, what the people engage with, they either engage with stuff that tells them that they're brilliantly clever because they agree with them, or stuff that they profoundly disagree with because they want to argue with them. And what that does is crowd out the spaces for fact-based cool analysis. Alongside the National Enquirer, there are always the New York Times. On social media platforms, all there is is constant clickbait, misinformation, National Enquirer nonsense. Has it not always been the case in life, down the generations, down the centuries, that people have always sought out people who think like they do? You know, um, you know that you, 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 we tend to gravitate to like-minded people, no matter what the milieu, no matter what the technology. You know, I mean, you know, look, I'll make no secret of this of the fact that I'm a left-to-center guy. I've always been right. So I, I read the Guardian instead of the Telegraph, you know? And now, for professional reasons, I have to read the Telegraph as well. But, you know, that's... But, you know, you know, you seek out, you seek out like-minded people, you know? I'm more at home with the New York Times than I am with the National Enquirer. Isn't that... Is the, is the technology qualitatively different? Does it really change the game that much? I think, again, you, you, you underplay... The, the degree to which malignant misinformation is tolerated on social media platforms because there's no consequence at all for it. 
and the degree to which even even newspapers that you disagree with still abide by standards which are vital to the maintenance of you know any sort of form of fact-based debate of course there's a there's a variety of opinions but there aren't a variety of of facts and misinformation is corrected in in traditional broadcast platforms there is also accountability so if you harass or bully someone through the pages of a newspaper, if you misinform people, if you libel someone, if you uh, spread misinformation that may lead to violent extremism, you are liable for the, for the damage, for the torts created on that platform. On everything but social media, because social media was given a special get out of jail card by the US uh, legislature in 1996 with something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which said that uniquely, social media platforms have no accountability for the content in law that's on their platforms. And that would seem that would seem sensible in the early stages of the creation of industry that you give it a bit of chance to grow. But actually now, now that we can see the negative externalities, the, the, the terrible consequences of having impunity on those platforms, whether it is what happened on January the 6th at the Capitol, whether it is the growth of anti-vaccine belief, which is actually putting at risk the entire world's populations, we can see that there are these malignant harms. When those harms are identified on social media platforms, do nothing about it. There's a very simple concept in, in law across the world, the duty of care, health and safety. When they fail to, to abide by their duty of care to their users, should there not be any any form of consequences whatsoever? Okay, let me come back to that a little bit later. But tell me a little bit about the economics of this, because now reading your report, Malgorithm, I mean, basically what you're saying is that, and what you've been saying for the last few moments is that you know these are the basically it's the economics of the platforms that's driving this because the more you can hang on to people and the more you can get them to you know click from one site to another and to another and so on the more money you make so tell me uh, how does somebody um like um, um like instagram how does it actually make money well instagram makes money in a very simple way you scroll down posts and every few posts it shows you an ad and so the more that you scroll, the more ads they can show you and the more money they can make. What Malgorithm are... Sorry, let me, just, let, me, let me just ask you this question. Do they make money just because I see the ad or do I have to click on the ad? Um, it's impressions. So the number of times the ad is seen uh, is is how they make their money. And of course you can then, and it's, it's the number of eyeballs to which it is served. Mm. And, then, um, and then you can see a lot of detailed data on click-throughs. I mean, one of the remarkable things about these platforms for advertisers is that it gives them enormous amounts of metrics on performance of, those of, of their advertising. Um, and that's really attractive to advertisers. It's why they're, and they're incredibly cheap platforms because actually, these are companies that are very, very easy to run. As I say, all the content, all the hard work is done by its users. So, 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 for, so for instance, I'm scrolling down and an ad pops up. I don't pay any attention to the ad and I continue scrolling. So, you know, what does, what does an Instagram or a Facebook make? Is it a cent, a euro, a half a euro every time an ad pops up? Do you have any idea after what they make? 
Well, you can, I mean, we use, ironically, we use the advertising platform quite frequently. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is put an advert attacking Facebook on Facebook. Do um, <laughs> you make any money out of it? <laughs> but, uh, here's the thing, like, let's say it's, let's say it's just uh, the, the tiniest possible profit number that you could give for an advert, five pence. Yes. So five pence for an advert. Each time that advert is seen, it generates five pence of profit for Mark Zuckerberg. Let's say you scroll down three posts and you see one advert. That's five, se- that's five pence. Five pence multiplied by a billion users is $50 million a day. $50 million a day across a year is $18 billion. So just three posts and one ad across their billion users equals $18 billion a year of pure profit. Now, here, let's take this a step further. Let's say people scroll down 100 a day but then you can make them scroll an extra three by serving up stuff that they aren't following, okay. but you think that they might be interested in, might keep them on the platform. Uh, what, you, what, what, what you're saying in your report is that, like, you know, look, again, let me put it this way. I'm interested in politics. Right? So if I scroll down, you know, I'm going to see links to politics, but there's no money in that. What you're saying in your report is that the money is to be made, you know, on the bad side of the street, so to speak. That, you know, uh, the sites like anti-vaxxers, one links to another and it links to anti-Semitism. And it, it, it links to, you know, all of these sort of uh, hate sites. That's where the money is. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the money is in, in contention. And so the money is in serving up as much of it as possible. If we know that anger keeps people on platform longer than, you know, sort of the, the normal stuff that you'd see, then we know that. And the fact they, that our report shows that they prioritize feeding people misinformation rather than good information we can see that this is a profit-driven reorganizing of the information that we see in our world. So it makes it look as though, the problem with the algorithm is that it makes it look as though, as though the world is more, it's more normal to believe misinformation than is actually true, but also that it's more hateful, more angry, more brittle than it really is, which has, in the end, you look at the billions of users of these platforms, it changes norms. It changes our around us and that is devastating in the end well yeah you know, when i look at history yeah you know, what you're talking about with anti-vaxxers and q and on it's, it's conspiracies right but well there's always been conspiracies you know throughout history i mean look at the number of women down the centuries that were burnt or drowned as witches well that was just conspiracy I mean, so is this stuff any, is this stuff new or is it just a technological way of repackaging it and making some money out of it? So no, and you know, the protocols of the elders of Zion were used by the Nazi regime as part of their justification. The false, the false misinformation that was the protocols of the elders of Zion was used as justification for the Holocaust. Misinformation has had a cost in lives throughout history. The difference now is that social media is, it's like the atomic bomb being invented in in communications. 
you can you can create unlimited amounts of communications energy from virtually nothing for free and so with one post that goes viral you can you can you can be seen by a billion people and it costs you nothing each additional recipient of an email or a tweet or a text or an or a, or a facebook post costs you nothing and so what it allows for is for highly motivated bad actors to use that platform in an, in, in an aggressive way to, to amplify fringe beliefs, conspiracy theories, which then take fire around the world faster than we can contain them. What it's doing is it's, it's creating a world in which misinformation is able to speak louder, faster, and to more people than good information is. And, this conspiracy stuff is it is it spontaneous or is are there leaders you know uh, for instance um i read a book called twitter and tear gas not sure if you've come across it you know um and the the the, the author of the book uh Tufeki, makes the point that you know to a large extent a lot of social media protest is leaderless that you know it's emotional it's you know it flares up but then it goes away again because there's no way of structuring it and channeling it into 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 any sort of action well that was that is one way of looking at it the other way of looking at it is that facebook themselves like let's take anti-vax for example there's 59 million people following anti-vaxxer spaces that we study in reality those 59 million followers are following only a hundred or so accounts. And that's Facebook's own conclusion, 111 they concluded. And we've found that 29 million of them are following just 10 individuals. So that doesn't sound leaderless to me. That sounds like a coherent plan by a small number of actors who've worked out how to manipulate these platforms very well. The problem is, do you look at it from the top down? I mean, are you, you know, what plane are you looking at it? And if you look at it the right way, you can see that there is a hierarchy to it. If you look at it the wrong way, it just looks like a great big mass, but you've got to flip it the other way around. And I'm afraid that just looking at the mass of misinformation, of course it would look as though it was leaderless and completely nebulous. But in reality, there is a structure, there's an architecture, and there is a strategy to how bad information flows across these platforms. To what end? Profit in the anti-vax space. Oh. So, you know, but not just for the social media platforms, but the for the anti-vaxxer, what they seek to do is, is, is to sow doubt about whether or not doctors are telling the truth so that they can sell their own products. The, the leaders of this movement, the anti-vax industry, the, the, let's say they take the top 10, they're all selling access to conferences, access to uh, false cures. They're saying, take this remedy, which they happen to sell instead of taking the vaccine. They're saying, join my forum and I'll give you special knowledge and special access. They're old fashioned spibs, hucksters, snake oil salesmen. We've seen them before in history, but now they're able to use these platforms because in the real world, you wouldn't put them on your podcast. You wouldn't put them on your TV show. These people are clearly scumbags, but on social media, they're superstars. This is the, you, we used to see them in the Western movie, the guy that rolled up in the town with the covered wagon and say, I have, this oil here that'll cure, cure all ills, sure. you know. And by the time everybody bought the bottle, he was gone out of town again. You know? yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. 
So, so, uh, but is there a political end to it as well, or is it just a money making? From your perspective, right? is there a political end to this, or is it just, you know, does it change anything? You know, it, look, the, the, these sorts of fringe ideologies don't do come together; they cohere in digital spaces, and the reason why is because. You know what it's like? You've got a couple of scammers and they both know they're both scamming the same people. They see each other and there's a wink of recognition. And so that wink of recognition, I can we, I saw it down the road from where I'm in Washington, D.C. on January the 6th, when you had a stage at the Capitol riots, which was set up by anti-vaxxers. On the same stage was the head of the Oath Keepers, the far-right white supremacist uh, violent extremist group and Roger Stone and George Papadopoulos, both Trump allies who'd been jailed for, um, who'd been jailed. So we, we, we can see that these fringe actors come together. Why is that? Because actually misinformation lies not just at the heart of, it doesn't just lie at the heart of anti-vax, it lies at the heart of hate. It lies at the heart of identity-based hate. It lies at the heart of Climate, climate change denial, it lies at the heart of, because, you know, you can't, these are people who will deny the facts as they exist. It lies at the heart of a whole array of malignant social phenomena and, 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 and activism types. And these people do cohere both in physical and in online spaces in particular. Okay, so what do we do about this stuff? create consequences for malignant, for, the, for both the creation of malignant content and for the toleration of malignant content. Look, Facebook have said again and again that they're going to deal with anti-vax content. They're gonna deal with, um, with hate because they know that socially, we as societies don't actually tolerate people that go around trying to persuade people to harm themselves. You know, we have, we've always had freedom of speech. We've always had the harm principle. It's right at, the right at the center of John Locke's conception of freedom of speech was that you have the right to free speech until it starts to harm others. And then it becomes more, it becomes more problematic. And the problem is that these are industries that are set up to harm thousands, millions of people in order to generate profit for themselves. In the real world, they would have to leave the town as you said, with a snake oil salesman, they'd have to leave town for fear they'd be lynched. On social media, there is no fear. There's no fear of them being lynched. Far from it. They're actually benefiting from the fact that the algorithms benefit them. So it's time for us to kind of look at this system that has benefited the malignant actor over the, over the well-meaning good actor, the snake oil salesman over the CDC and say, well, how do we hold you accountable? And, that, and as with any industry that creates, you know, what in the economics jargon are called negative externalities, but basically problems as a result of their behavior. And much of social media is good behavior, but where it creates problems, you regulate for it. So you create costs which make, which disincentivize them from allowing the creation of those problems. We did it with the climate, with, with big oil and saying that there needs to be consequences for the production of of carbon so whether it's taxation or it's other mechanisms we need to find a way, way to regulate europe is doing it right now with the digital services act the uk is doing it with the online harms bill the us right now has a couple of bills one from senators warner klobuchar and and Hirono, one from tom malinowski and uh, senator anna eshoo uh, sorry congresswoman uh, anna eshoo there's some interesting stuff going on globally right now, but I think we are starting to get to grips with it. 
So to finish off, to finish off, Ahmed, you're hopeful that the tide is turning. I'm look, I'm confident that at the beginning of 2020, people kept asking me, isn't online misinformation? It's just online though, right? No one is asking that question at the beginning of 2021. Not after January the 6th, not after seeing COVID riots, uh, anti-mask protests, seeing anti-vaccine protests at the LA stadium and in the UK as well. And certainly not after seeing January the 6th and seeing the storming of the Capitol by people who believed that Donald Trump was the world's greatest pedophile hunter, which is what the QAnon conspiracy theory is. It all sounds ludicrous until they've got assault rifles and they're tearing down the institutions of our democracy. Okay. Listen, appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. It's, 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 it's an interesting and challenging perspective. Um, uh, I, 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 I do hear you say that uh, social media is also an enormous force for good yeah. um, in the way it connects people that otherwise wouldn't be able to connect. And during the last year, I mean, I think many, many people would be in an even worse place if they hadn't been able to connect with families and loved ones through social media but what you're saying is that we need to get a grip with the dark get 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 a grip on the dark side yeah i mean look in the last year how have we shared how have we shared love sucker and vulnerability it's been social media but how have we also been misinformed it's been social media and the problem is that what you need to do is encourage through a progressive taxation system and through intelligent taxation and through intelligent intelligent regulation a social media sector that is working for our economy, for our society, not for not just purely for the enrichment of its owners. Okay, so you're originally from the UK. You're in Washington DC now. You're going to go back to the UK anytime soon. I I would like to visit my friends and family and my cat, but yeah. uh, I think for now there's a hell of a job to be done here. I believe the Labour Party is looking for a candidate in Hartlepool. You wouldn't consider throwing your hat in the ring there, would you? I would not vaguely be... I mean, I'm not, I'm not even a member <laughs> of a political party anymore. And I would not be interested in... But hey, hey Hardy Poole, you'd be forming, following in the, the footsteps of Peter Mandelson and look where he is today. Well, pr precisely. <laughs> well, that's as good an answer as anything I wish to finish. So listen, Imran, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. And then, yeah, well, yeah I know you have a charged day there today so appreciate you taking the time out and uh, good luck with the work you're doing which is an important work again thank you thank you so much Thanks. bye